Kia ora. Welcome to the Coronavirus Podcast. Uh, for me, I'm an essential worker uh, involved in food production. Uh, blocks of cheese going to your supermarket. That's what I'm all about at the moment. Um, so I hope that all of us can get through this the other side as unscathed as we possibly can. Um, so it's different for all of us. But whatever you're doing, I hope you can hang in there. Kia ora. Welcome to the Coronavirus Podcast. I'm Indira Stewart. Later this episode, we're going to hear how kids and parents and blended families are coping with the lockdown. But first, here are the headlines. We've had one more death from COVID-19. So that brings the total toll to 14. Director General of Health Ashley Bloomfield says the person who died was a woman in her 80s from the Rosewood Rest Home Cluster. Every person we lose to COVID-19 is a tragedy and with family and friends left without their loved one and my thoughts and those of others I'm sure are with this woman's family today and in coming days. Now people in aged care facilities have made up a large proportion of New Zealand's deaths from COVID-19 so far. That sector is now facing investigations from both the Ministry of Health and the Ombudsman. Yesterday, the Chief Executive of the Aged Care Association, Simon Wallace, spoke to the Epidemic Response Committee. And he said that while problems with access to PPE have largely been solved, there are still some issues. We shouldn't be even now having to quibble with DHBs about our access to that equipment. And sure, it is definitely, um, the situation is definitely much, much improved and it's largely very good. But there are still one or two pockets and one or two problem DHBs where our members, who are the rest homes that need them, haven't been able to get that equipment. Mr Wilson said they also want all residents and staff at aged care facilities to be tested for COVID-19. Our residents um, may not have a sniffle. They may not have uh, a slightly uh, sore throat but they have a lot of very serious underlying health conditions. It just seems completely crazy to me that you are not, you are not testing these people. When we have the capacity, when the government has said test, 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 we have 700 admissions each week into age residential care. There is capacity to test uh, 40,000 a week. Why wouldn't you test our 700? And the other thing, uh, um, Mr Chair, is that our families, the families of our residents moving into rest homes are expecting that, are expecting that of us. Here's how Dr Ashley Bloomfield responded to some of those points at his daily media conference. Sure, in the case of the first point, um, actually age residential care workers is one of the groups identified in our message to DHBs yesterday that they, may want, they should do some surveillance testing on to, just to check because that is a group that um, could be at a higher risk. On the issue of what happens to people, uh, residents going into or going back into age residential care facilities, just to be clear, anyone with symptoms is tested. Anyone who is positive does not go into, back into the facility until they are cleared. Uh, even if they are tested and are negative and all other admissions are isolated for 14 days and treated as if they were COVID-19 positive. So there's a really, uh, and we agree on this, there's a very clear process which we agree on to help 
uh, prevent any further infection from residents coming into, into any of our aged residential care facilities. We are absolutely focused on that. The Epidemic Response Committee also heard from the chair of the New Zealand Medical Association, Kate Bannock, and she had a strong message around the distribution of flu vaccines. The flu vaccine supply issue was a complete debacle. There was absolutely no doubt about that. Um, because the distribution company um, has, as per previous years, simply distributed on a first-come, first-served basis, there were groups um, who were uh, putting in early orders uh, and then when it was realised that only vulnerable groups were going to be initially vaccinated, didn't relinquish their vaccines to where they might be more needed. Now, that might have been because they didn't know initially, but whatever the reason, it meant that we in general practice just could not get vaccines. We in our practice could not get vaccines for 10 days. And we have we have over 4,000 patients who needed vaccination in those vulnerable groups. Total disaster. I don't want to see what happened with flu to be happening when we get a COVID-19 vaccine. Both Ashley Bloomfield and the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern disputed Dr Baddock's message. Well, firstly, I would disagree with that premise. Um, the flu vaccine and flu vaccination started earlier um, than we usually would, for good reason. We wanted to be prepared. And we have more flu vaccine than we would usually offer as well. So I disagree um, with their assessment of the flu vaccine. We know and we want to protect New Zealanders, and that's why we moved early in order to do that. So uh, just to pick up on the flu vaccine again, uh, the flu vaccine is unique in New Zealand and that is available both to, through publicly funded uh, 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 people who are eligible and also through the private sector and it has been so for a long time. This year Pharmac had moved to secure an extra 400,000 doses of flu vaccine before COVID-19 was even known about. We then moved to uh, uh, advance the flu vaccination program so that we could make sure that our most vulnerable New Zealanders could be vaccinated first and in fact over 50% of over 65s have already been vaccinated, even under a lockdown situation. So I think that's fantastic progress. You can rest assured that we are already working actively on not just what we might do to distribute a COVID-19 vaccine, but to make sure that New Zealand has access to it is um, right across the research and, and ordering and purchasing and regulatory aspects of any vaccine once it's available. We will be managing all aspects of COVID-19 vaccine mm. from the centre. Kate Baddock also raised concerns about a lack of funding for GPs. Now, the government had previously funded GPs to cover the cost of setting up virtual consultations and some other expenses linked to the lockdown. But Dr Baddock says GPs had expected to get additional funding to cope with some of their ongoing costs. The ministry, the DHBs and the minister had all agreed um, that funding was required and they could see the imperative need. The first tranche of that, which actually was pre-lockdown, was to do with assisting in converting to virtual consultation requirements. And there was an understanding that, again, because of the known shortfall that, and also the expected shortfall going forward, that there'd been injection of funding of 45 million over four weeks to sustain general practice through lockdown before we could start to 
establish and catch up with ourselves in terms of ongoing patient demand and supply. And that has not happened. They have reneged on that expectation and the final tranche has not been forwarded to general practice. It is an immediate need uh, and there will be practices and doctors who are out of work because of it. The committee also heard similar concerns about funding from the chief executive of the New Zealand Pharmacy Guild, Andrew Gordon. Well, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern responded to those criticisms later in the afternoon. What I'd point out for um, the likes of pharmacies, the likes of GPs, support has been provided to them. In fact, um, $45 million to date has gone into general practice to support them during the COVID response. That's for uh, everything um, from supporting the virtual uh, con- consults that they've been doing, uh, for additional costs as a part of testing, Um, And uh, also, they have been eligible for the wage subsidies. So we have recognised the costs they've faced uh, and we have uh, worked hard to try and support them as well. But Andrew Gordon from the Pharmacy Guild says the funding provided so far simply isn't enough. We'd recognised that there was some initial funding uh, from the government, $15 million to meet uh, immediate needs, which was to cover you know, some of the layout reconfiguration and there was a real surge in workload, so that was also covered. But look, the reality is there's been a significant struggle on this ongoing viability funding. We put, we we tabled the substance of our numbers on the 1st of April when here we are sitting three weeks later, still trying to get a clear resolution on how we get the money to actually keep our pharmacies open. I can tell you, I would not be at this committee Uh, And I'm grateful to be at this committee, but I believe in solving problems in the system. We've pulled every lever, every engagement trick, or everything that you should normally expect to do to be heard. That hasn't been possible. We've exhausted the Ministry of Health. We've exhausted the DHBs. We weren't able to engage with the Minister. So we're sitting here today. Pulled it all with uh, the Minister of Health, David Clark? I know not at all, uh, Simon. Uh, we, we have sought to meet with the Minister and we have been unable to do so. Um, the Director General, General of Health? Uh, he has not made himself available to us. Now, our producer, Sonia Sly, has been looking at how parents and children in blended families are coping with the lockdown. Can you hear that? Silence. Kia ora. I'm Sonia Sly, and right now I'm sitting in my little inner-city apartment all alone. But reassuringly, that won't be the case for too long. Now, I'm a part-time parent, and my son will be here in just a few days. Now, I know there are other single parents and those in blended families for whom the lockdown has been, shall we say, a little more complicated. There are some additional challenges in coping alone, but I can't even imagine what it's like to navigate the ebb and flow of blended family relationships and deal with any other additional anxiety and stress that might compound the situation as well. But I also wonder how this lockdown might affect children in the short, intermediate and long term. But first, let's meet a couple of parents. I'm busy, but I'm also a really dedicated father. Family's everything to me. This is Roger. He's a single dad to a six-year-old son and a ten-year-old daughter. He lives in Wellington, and downtime away from his three businesses means he actually has a bit more time to spend with his kids. 
we 50-50 co-share the children. At the moment, it is trying times. It's hard for the children because they're not going to school. Their routine's been messed up quite heavily. No sports. So it's pretty demanding. How has it affected them so far? Uh, we've been trying our best to try and keep it as normal as possible. I hate to say it, you know, they, they're not really enjoying going between the two houses. I think because this is their family home and their dog's here, my niece is staying with us, so we've got a little bit more interaction, whereas their mother is in her own bubble by herself. It's challenging. My daughter did say yesterday, why can't mum just stay here and we just stay in one house? Why was it definitely not an option for you? For me, it was more their mother who didn't want to break the, the routine. Do you think meeting your children's needs is also really important at this time and definitely i would really like them just to stay in the one family home i've got to respect the wishes of their mother it's hard for everyone and especially for the little dog because he misses his kids <laughs> i guess it's just not trying to confuse the children too that mum and dad are back under the roof and then maybe getting excited that mum and dad might get back together the other hard thing too with this is managing device time. I'm finding pretty difficult at the moment. Um, very busy. <laughs> yep. Meet Emma. Her situation's a little bit more complicated, shall we say. In fact, I can't even get my head around it. So I'll let Emma explain. So our three at home are five. Um, two and a half and 18 months. Wow, you really do have your work cut out for you, don't you? Yeah, well, that's only half of them. So, <laughs> so my partner has two older children who are 12 and 10. They live with their mother full time um, and we have them every second weekend. And we've had to fight really hard to get that. And then I have a daughter who goes to her, her father every week on, week off. And then we have three children at home between us so so the older children's mother has other children as well and her partner has other children. So how has it made the situation of being in lockdown even more complicated and maybe intensified the situation? So I think it's made it us think about what was going to be the best approach to take for both the safety of the children and all families. Like also having to make some really difficult decisions for my daughter, who's week on, week off. She's only with her father and that's it. And he's in the same community. On the other hand, my partner had to make a more difficult decision for his older children who are in a different community, who we don't see very often. The risk that their family also has other people in it, that it might be in the best interest for them not to come to our house during lockdown. How has that affected the children emotionally so far? They've got so used to that routine. To not see them for four weeks or potentially longer than that is difficult to take. But we have agreed to make sure we have video chats with them as much as possible with all the children because they're struggling to understand why can my daughter come but they can't. For us, we don't get on very well with the children's mother. It's very much your days are what your days are. There's no flexibility there. So I think any excuse as well, no, they, they can't come, is an easy decision for her. For us to also agree to that was was made even more difficult in that situation. Today is normally the, the day we would go and pick them up. So, you know, my partner's feeling very um, emotional about it. 
this experience has been completely new for everyone, and even us adults are struggling under the pressure. So I think it's important to look at how this lockdown's affecting children. Literally, nobody has, has done this before. I mean, this, this is a once in a lifetime, maybe a once in two lifetimes kind of event. Professor Paul Jose is from the School of Psychology at Victoria University. His research interests explore how children and adolescents cope with the problems in their lives. When you're talking about quite young children, say under the age of 10, they're going to have some difficulty understanding the reason for the lockdown. Over the age of 10, they can understand the necessity for sheltering in place and self-isolation. They can see the news, they can hear reports of people seriously ill from this disease or dying. So it's much more convincing for them. And you have to uh, be honest because children can understand if you're hiding something or if you're being dishonest. So if somebody in the family is ill or has suffered an injury or is in some kind of danger, I mean, separate from the coronavirus, they would pick up on that as well. Families are systems where emotional feelings are transmitted. And most kids pick up on these these kinds of emotions pretty quickly, whether they're positive or negative. Especially with the families that are in bubbles and the children are separated from their parents. I mean, what kind of short-term and long-term effects do you think that could have on their, say, emotional development? If the immediate family, if they are doing activities together, if they are emotionally available and supportive to the child, I think a lot of the ill effects that you're alluding to can be prevented or blunted. Now, one of the big unknowns in this situation is the indeterminacy of how long this lockdown is going to go. Every day seems like the last day. Every tomorrow looks like it's going to be like today. That's disconcerting to children as well because children need schedules. They need to have a, a sense of routine. So it's important that the family at home create its own set of routines. Now, you alluded to uh, the intermediate to long-term effects. Most children who are fairly resilient and capable of coping with a dislocation like this are going to be fine. They're the short-term, the mid-term, and the, and the long-term. There will be some individuals who are a little more fragile, and being absent from the other part of their family, like a father who is not currently in their household, can make them unhappy, can make them anxious and depressed. And I would recommend in those situations that you find a way to talk almost every day through Zoom, Skype, or on the phone. For those families who are in more complicated situations where, say, being in a blended family or, you know, moving between two households causes other kinds of tensions, that's obviously going to compound this isolation time. So some small children will be adversely affected by this and they will really dearly miss that absent parent and others will be okay with seeing them on the screen or hearing their voice. One of the things that children 
need that we don't often think about is a hug. And missing a parent oftentimes is hearing their voice, feeling their touch, being in the room with them. And so there can be some intangible loss felt by a young child that we as adults may not completely understand. Older children and adolescents can generally cope with that kind of absence a little better. Even having two parents who are having to work full-time, that also adds to the extra stress and time that they might be able to spend with their kids. So how much is enough attention to give a child to make sure that they are feeling safe and loved? I guess my recommendation is for parents to do a little introspection about what they think their children particularly need. One child might need structure. Another child might do better with more free time. Another child may need a hug. Another child may need doing an activity together, like cooking some food. So be creative. Listen to your child. Try to spend some time with them. One of the big dangers, I might say, is for parents who are not working, who are at home with with their children 24-7, There's an additional stress, if you will, about being with each other all the time. Parents need to be aware of that as well. So they may need to factor in some alone time for the child or for the parent. Now, if the parents are, in some cases, both working and out of the home doing essential services, that's a different situation. And that in and of itself has its own stressors because the child is is home and maybe missing the parent who's supposed to be at home taking care of them. I suspect that that's not, not a common situation, however. That was Professor Paul Jose finishing off that report by our producer, Sonia Sly. That's all for this episode, but do keep an eye out in our feed because later today we'll be doing a special interview with the Health Minister David Clark talking about what the new rules will be for expanding bubbles when we get to Level 3. We'll be back with you tomorrow. Remember, be kind. Kia homaru, kia kaha, ka kite koe aupopo. The Coronavirus Podcast is presented by me, Indira Stewart. It's produced by William Ray, Jesse Chang and Sonia Sly. Our sound engineer is Adrian Holley and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. You can subscribe to the Coronavirus Podcast anywhere. It's free. Just go to the podcast and series page at rnz.co.nz. Music